welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. For the last time in this book, for a while anyhow, we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to be reading to you beginning in verse 23. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Well, I've titled today's message, Faithful is He Who Calls, and through this conclusion of Paul's letter, he supplies his reader, his readers with a tremendous level of reassurance that all that has, pro- all that has been promised throughout the course of this letter, uh, God himself is going to bring it all to pass. For just a few examples of what we studied over the last uh, few months. In chapter 1 and verse 10, Jesus promises to rescue us from the wrath that is to come. We have also by him been called into his kingdom and glory. That is in chapter 2 and verse 12. Colossians tells us that he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Also, though God does not preserve us from tribulation, he promises to preserve us through it. That's chapter 3 and verse 3. He will call us who truly belong to him to increase and abound in love for one another. 3 verse 12. He will establish us without blame at his coming. That is chapter 3 and verse 13, uh, which is a promise repeated in today's passage in verse 23. Uh, this includes Paul's fifth reference to the parousia, or that second coming of Christ. And we are assured that Christ himself will descend from heaven with a shout. He will raise the dead and will be caught up together with him on the day of the Lord when Christ returns suddenly like a thief in the night. That is chapter 5 and verse 2. Folks, all of these checks will cash. God is faithful, and he will bring them to pass. And embracing this makes our service to the Lord Jesus and to the brethren uh, so much easier. So much easier and enjoyable when we are confident of what is to come. And finally today in our verse 23, we are told that he will sanctify us entirely. 
That term entirely means to bring to fullness and completion, actually perfection. And by doing so, we're told our spirit and soul and body will be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Well, it's not hard to discern in all of these statements how God is, he's not just sitting back as a spectator. He's not just uh, cheering us on with his fingers crossed, hoping that we, ourselves as individuals, somehow will just pull this all off in the end. <laughs> Folks, God isn't just rooting for us. Rather, Paul places all of his confidence and our, all of our confidence in the future, not in ourselves, but in the providence of God. He accomplishes it all. So there's no room left for attaching Paul's confidence to man. God is pictured as accomplishing it. He calls us into his kingdom. Verse 24, faithful is he who calls. Verse 24 gives us what is often referred to You'll hear it uh, passed around in circles. The effectual call of God. The effectual call of God. We find a very similar proclamation from Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 6 and verse 37, which, like 1 Thessalonians, it also describes God's effectual call as pointing toward a final resurrection, an ultimate resurrection of man at the moment of Christ's appearing. Listen to this. It's from John 6 and verse 37. There Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of God who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. It's the resurrection. It's the last day. Likewise, Paul in this letter has placed enormous emphasis on the resurrection from the dead accomplished on the day of the Lord, which guarantees us in verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Don't be confused there with, with Paul's usage of the word may. That's an English translation. Um, it does not imply this, this promise is conditional upon anything that we do. It's supplied in the form of a prayer of final benediction to this church. It's a, it's a prayer of closing by Paul. Uh, it's not provided or meant to be by Paul as a, well, I hope so, or, or, or maybe statement. 
Unless he fears that there is someone in the congregation, someone reading the letter, who might not yet have believed. But to those who are called, Paul affirms, faithful is he who calls, and he also will bring it to pass. So the, the proof text only serves as a pretext. I always read the entire context, as we learned in Sunday school today. Uh, Paul's benediction is written as a, this is guaranteed to happen statement to those who are called. Because the context reassures that God is both faithful and sovereign. God will bring it to pass, says Paul. And Jesus again states in John chapter 10 and verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, says Jesus, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So as we heard during the scripture reading, as I pointed out the opening of Romans chapter 8, uh, nothing will separate us from the love of Jesus. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And John MacArthur makes this correct observation about verse 23. He says, quote, This, as in every time the divine call is mentioned in the New Testament, it refers to God's effectual call of his chosen ones to salvation. And he gives about a dozen references in Scripture to that. And he continues, The God who calls will also bring those whom he calls to glory, and none will be lost. He gives another half dozen references again. Um, so Christians, we, we don't experience a fear, as Arminians do, uh, of losing our salvation. It's not up to us. It's not us who call ourselves. Uh, scripture assures that can never happen to Christ's sheep. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. Um, Neither do we place confidence in the, the human will to achieve all of this as, as the free willers do. God is absolutely sovereign. And if you are a chosen vessel of his mercy, Paul declares in verse 23, he himself will sanctify you entirely without blame at the second coming of our Lord Jesus. That is the point where God will pour out his wrath on the earth. The fact that this experience of complete sanctification, fullness of sanctification, being sanctified entirely, or we sometimes refer to it as we read in Romans chapter 8, glorification, being glorified, it's going to be an all-encompassing sanctification. That is reinforced by Paul's declaration that our spirit and soul, and body will be preserved complete. And then twice in, in this one verse, Paul uses exhaustive or comprehensive terms that say entirely and complete. The state of glorification is when we will be transformed and all presence of sin is going to be removed, folks. The curse will be removed 
And this all happens during the same recreation event that Peter describes on the day of, as, as the day of the Lord in 2 Peter in chapter 3. The Apostle John says, well, little children, though it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be, we know that when he appears, we will be like him. First John 3, 2. John's not suggesting we're going to become little gods, like Jesus is God, uh, but that we will become like Jesus in having no presence of sin, sanctified entirely. And when Christ appears in the clouds, that is what will happen. We will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, we are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There it says, at that moment we will be raised immortal when death is swallowed up in victory and we will be transformed and this perishable will put on the imperishable and this mortal will put on immortality. This is what we're pointed at throughout this whole book. The appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ when everything comes to full fruition and Paul's reference to being preserved complete, it's body, soul, and spirit. It deserves a second look before we move on. Um, there's another place in Scripture where we see body, soul, and spirit, uh, and that is in Hebrews 4 and verse 12. There we're told of the power and the, pre the penetration of God's word. The writer of Hebrews says, quote, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit that describes the immaterial of both joints and marrow that describes the material and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. <laughs> so when that theological battle rages as to whether humans are to be defined as dichotomous or trichotomous, you should consider these verses. You're like, why? Well, the dichotomous position believes that humans are composed of only two parts, body and spirit. They claim spirit is merely another scriptural reference to soul. Um, dichotomy is a very popular view. Uh, it, it is not heresy to believe uh, dichotomy. It's wrong, but, uh, but it's not heresy. Um, salvation doesn't hang in the balance on this subject, but there is an important point that we need to make. Um, those who are trichotomous believe that the humans, uh, humans consist of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. And one of my finest technical commentaries is called the Expositor's Bible Commentary Set. Uh, it's 13 volumes, very exhaustive, very thorough. Um, it states that the construction of the Greek grammar in verse 23 quite strongly demands that there is a distinction between each of the three parts, body, soul, and spirit. The writer of Hebrews said that the word of God is sharp, 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. The spirit, that's the Greek pneuma, uh, that, that's the breath. The breath that animates you, the spirit causes you to be alive. The soul describes the eternal psyche. It's the Greek psyche. Um, never ceases to have consciousness regarding your eternal destiny. The soul continues. The psyche continues uh, in heaven or in hell. It will continue. And the body is obviously the physical element of our human experience. And you're like, you know, I, I don't really care. I don't blame you. Paul's point in this passage is not to argue trichotomy versus dichotomy, but to emphasize that when Christ returns, you'll be sanctified entirely. Every part of you, nothing, no part of you will remain corrupted by sin. That is, that is Paul's point. And when Christ returns, this will be a day of completed sanctification or glorification. Well, I can't wait for that day will finally be set free from the sinful corruption. Uh, and for that, we should care. But there remains one more important implication of body, soul, and spirit that is virtually always overlooked. Virtually ours, always overlooked. Um, animals are described in the Old Testament as having a spirit and a body. The spirit is... The breath that animates them causes them to be alive, like us. Their body describes as their physical experience as well. And our study through Ecclesiastes taught us in Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 21 that the spirit of man ascends upwards, returning to God who gave it, well, the spirit of the beast, said Solomon, descends downward into the earth. The breath of the animal ceases to exist. It, it is discarded uh, along with the body. Animals have a spirit. They breathe and are animated like us. But both Peter, 2 Peter 2, verse 12, and Jude, it's Jude verse, 1, uh, verse 10, uh, they assure us that they are unreasoning beasts born as creatures of instinct who will never experience intimacy with God. Animals do not possess an eternal soul. They cease to exist entirely, folks. Fluffy the cat is no more important than Harry the Holstein, whom you consumed at Burger King with pickle and ketchup. Animals are dichotomous, and they cease to exist when they die. Humans are trichotomous. We have an eternal element that will continue to dwell eternally, either in heaven or in hell. Humans are the only species created by God in the image of God, and thereby we enjoy intimacy with him and communion with one another through the body and blood sacrifice of Christ. 
animals do not. Christ unapologetically directed Peter to, you know, consume every single kind of them. No species is more important than any other. But while animals are alive, Christians treat them decent and humane, but not human. We do not become animal rights activist folks. We become human rights activists. We defend the dignity of human life. From the moment that children are conceived until the moment that we utter their graveside prayers. Because you are created in the image of God. And you have what animals in Scripture are never described as having. You have an eternal soul. And therefore, Jesus states in Matthew 10 and verse 28, Do not fear man who is able to kill the body, but unable to kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. In Mark 8 and verse 35, Jesus said, Don't worry about your life or what you might lose. And he says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give, asked Jesus, in exchange for his soul? Folks, you'd better be really concerned about the destiny of your soul. You don't cease to exist. For our scripture reading in Romans 8 teaches us that he who did not spare his own son, but he delivered him over for us. And he did so that Christ might bear the enormous cost of all sin and deliver your soul from hell. Dichotomy versus trichotomy doesn't matter. You're darn tootin' it matters. And a correct understanding ensures us that man is created by God differently from the apes. As evolution is just a lie from the pit of hell. We are not evolved animals. We are pre created by God as male and female. And folks, these people who are petting the whales and demanding that we worship Mother Earth while turning their backs on the lives of humans being decimated in Ukraine and elsewhere. They, they do not belong to God. And anyone who elevates animals to a human status, yet is complacent toward destroying human life. Think about that. Raising animals above humans, treating animals as humans. Well, that's a grave error in our day. A grave error in our day. Folks, other than, than serving mankind as a commodity, Scripture places no value on animals. Nor do Christians become concerned about their destiny. Their destiny just doesn't matter. Scripture never places any emphasis on it, nor do we. What matters is your destiny.
Because you have a soul. Folks, it is so important that your, your children be in church today that we can discuss these things. And that you can continue the discussions when you go home. Where else in the world are they going to hear this information today? They won't hear it anywhere. They're not going to hear it in the universities. They're not going to hear it in the workplace. The church is the only place that has the truth. Oh, the whole world is going crazy. It's going crazy. In verse 25, Paul says, Brethren, pray for us. Boy, clearly Paul sees himself as inadequate. But it's also an acknowledgement that God has to work through him. Has to work through him. It doesn't serve as an indication that God needs uh, our prayers in order for God to act. Um, prayers display our reliance upon God, whom we know is sovereign and omnipotent, all-powerful. God can act where God wants to act. Uh, Benny Hinn once stated, if you've ever watched any of the Justin Peters films, there's a clip in there, one of them, called Clouds Without Water. And there's a clip in there where uh, Benny Hinn is stating to another gentleman, God has the power, but through prayer, we give him the permission. N now that is heretical. God has the power, but we give him the permission. Uh, folks, God does not need your permission. Nor, nor do we command him what to do through our prayer. Prayer is an exercise of calibrating, or rather recalibrating, our will to the will of God. We pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Not what our will will be done. And the only way that we can pray rightly is to pray in harmony with God's will. It's one reason I put a summary of the previous three weeks' passages at the top of our weekly email, our prayer email. Um, those alert us to how we can pray in harmony to God's will, things that we can know are God's will. There are many, many things that we will make all of our requests known to God, but we just simply don't know what his will is. That comes with physical maladies and other things, and, and we lift those to the Lord, but we just don't know. But if you want to pray in a way that you know your prayers can be answered, we have to pray in harmony with the will of God. Two weeks ago, we learned it's God's will that we test every spirit according to Scripture. We hold it up to Scripture, compare it to Scripture, to discern whether or not that spirit is from God. And since Scripture reveals this is God's will, he will affirmatively answer that prayer. He will give us the discernment that we need if we, if we pray sincerely. Here are a few examples of what Paul asks for prayer. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 1. Pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly. That's a prayer God will answer. That is the will of God. Ephesians 6, verse 19, Paul says, Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known the boldness of the mystery of the gospel. That is God's will, that the mystery of the gospel be proclaimed and be made known. 
In Colossians 4 and verse 3, pray for us, says Paul, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. And of course he adds that I make it, may make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. Pray for an open door for the word and, and that is God's will. He will give you an open door for the word. That doesn't assure that everyone that you speak to is going to profess faith in Christ. But you will have a door open for the word. This is the will of God. This is how we can know our prayers will be answered. Um, they are the type of prayers that God answers affirmatively because they are clearly laid out in Scripture as God's will. And these are the types of prayers that Paul invites. Ones that will get answered. If you'd like to experience more answered prayer, start asking according to God's revealed will in Scripture instead of asking according to your own will. Prayer is not designed to be a mystical way to get whatever you want. Uh, this isn't all that hard. First uh, John, it's the Apostle John, 1 John 5 and verse 14. He says, quote, This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Because we've asked what we, things that we know are his will. And if we ask that sincerely, God in his providence will grant us a, a channel to fulfill it. Uh, folks, if we would just pray more according to what we know God wants done, um, he would say, seek, Jesus would say, seek his kingdom first and righteousness, and all these other things that you keep worrying about, the food and the water and the, and the transportation and everything, uh, those will come. Those will come. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and these other things, they'll be added to you. Doesn't mean that you don't ask. Give us this day our daily bread. But to concentrate uh, importantly on the kingdom is uh, where we should be focusing much of our emphasis in prayer. Paul also writes in verse 26, Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Well, that's God's will. Go ahead and pucker up and... No, wait a second. It's also meant to be a greeting. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Um, at that time, the kiss was a common display of affection uh, between brothers and sisters in a family. Uh, it conveyed a brotherly or sisterly affection uh, to those whom you kissed. Very close affection. Uh, it isn't like the greeting in many countries today that we have visited uh, where, where you'll note that everyone is greeted with, with a kiss on each side of the cheek, a soft kiss on each side. You've seen that. you probably experienced that. I have uh, by people I don't even know. That type of kiss is really, in some cultures, a formality. All right? It's not a brotherly or sisterly affection. It's just what the culture demands that they do. That's not what Paul's speaking about here either. Uh, what Paul wants us to practice is a sincere greeting of affection between the brethren. Well, as far as you can do that without getting weird. Our culture does not greet with a kiss. 
Our culture almost exclusively categorizes kissing as being romantic. That is not appropriate in church. A holy kiss, a holy kiss, implies there's nothing passionate, nor fleshly, nor romantic about it. It is holy. It's, it's set apart to God. And the same affection today would be displayed through uh, a warm handshake, a warm greeting, a, a pat on the back, uh, and as you often witness here, uh, a, a, a soft embracing hug, a holy hug. One, that sh one like you would do to someone whom you love. A holy hug is a sincere embrace without any connotations of passion. Embrace one another with a holy hug. And then Paul says, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. Since God accomplishes all of his work and, um, and the redemption of souls through his word, this command is about as urgent as any exists in the church today. And, and it is a command. This is a command. The phrase, I adjure you by the Lord, it's a very forceful an emphatic statement by Paul. Professor Thomas Constable of Dallas Theological Seminary writes this, quote, Paul's words are surprisingly strong. He puts his readers under oath. Literally saying, I charge you to do this. He continues, uh, Constable says, suggesting that God would discipline them if they disobeyed. It's a very serious charge. Uh, every Greek resource that I've consulted agrees on this, that the phrase means to bind the recipients under an oath and cause them to swear by it. Swear to me, you will read this letter, Paul is saying. One of my Greek lexicons defines the Greek phrase in this way, adjure you. It says, uh, quote, to authoritatively bind a solemn obligation or promissory responsibility upon someone as God being witness by the Lord. Normally, the command brought with it penalties for failure to comply. A theologian named Robert Thomas, writing for the expositor, Expositor's Bible Commentary uh, set, which I referenced earlier, very exhaustive, he states this, quote, whatever the case, the charge here carries implication of divine judgment for failure to comply. The first recipients of the letter, probably the church leaders, are bound under oath to have this letter read to all the brethren. Paul commanded Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. And when Paul departed the church in Ephesus, he stated, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink back. Shrink back means to recoil in fear. He said, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Folks, tragically, not all, 
But many churches today are not teaching the content of these New Testament letters. They are not teaching the full content of these letters cover to cover. The more common approach is proof texting. Pull out a snippet of a verse somewhere, put it on the television screen, and then talk about yourself for 10 minutes. No wonder the church is in such a desperate situation. I'll be, I'll be honest, all week, and again this morning, I usually uh, go through the message, I try to let it sit for a day, and come back Sunday morning and go through again and look at it uh, for, with fresh eyes. And all week, the weight of this command causes my soul to quiver. Our elders at Port St. Lucie Bible Church need to hear this adjuring by Paul to ensure the scriptures are always read and preached at Port St. Lucie Bible Church for this leadership is going to be held accountable to God. Hmm. These are the words of eternal life. Well, Paul concludes the epistle by saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Grace, of course, is unmerited favor. Um, it's unmerited. You can't earn salvation, as Mike Clements uh, taught us in his parable this morning, uh, amplified it well in, in adult Sunday school. Folks, you can't earn your way to heaven. It doesn't matter whether you come in at the last hour. <laughs> Just come in. Come into the kingdom of God. Receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Folks, your soul is exceedingly precious. Exceedingly precious so much that Jesus Christ paid the ultimate cost on the cross for offering his body and his blood as a sacrifice for your sins. I'm going to ask the men to come forward to serve the Lord's Supper while I read 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20. There the apostle Peter told to the church after exclaiming that Christ had suffered. He says, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you are healed. For you were continually like, like sheep, uh, excuse me, you were continually like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Sean, would you pray before distributing 
the bread and cup.